Hey everyone, Devin Haru from CBC Sports. Not sure what sporting event I'll be at next, but I'll sure to take you on the journey. And as always, as I say, buckle up. You're listening to the stars of the show on the Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Pro Sports Podcasters. My name is Colbert Garan. Most of you know me as Kobe. And today we're going to talk a little bit of Canada's game. We're going to talk with Harmon Dial. He's a writer and analyst, reporter for The Athletic, covering primarily the Vancouver Canucks. We're going to talk a little broad perspective on the NHL today. Harmon, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Good to have you on, buddy. Good to have you on. Before we actually get into the meat of it, let's talk a little bit about how you got into this. What's Where did your passion for hockey come from and how is it that it kind of translated into journalism? Yeah, I uh, so my dad was a huge Canucks fan growing up and so it just kind of ran through, through the family as a result. I watched a ton of games growing up and for me, how it sort of translated to a profession was uh, honestly at the beginning – I started a Twitter account, I think, when I was 13, and just because I was such a passionate fan, I would get so many thoughts about the direction of the team, and especially the Canucks at the time. We're in a phase where after losing in the Stanley Cup final, they were towards the twilight years of their contention window, and so it was sort of um, you know, a polarizing time to, to be a, a Vancouver fan, and you could see the new, new direction was coming, and so I just felt this urge to you know, get my thoughts out there. Uh, and, um, and so I, I would tweet a lot. I started uh, blogging a few, few years later. And, um, and honestly, just kind of took off from there. Honestly, when I first started blogging, I didn't, blogging, I didn't even necessarily, necessarily think of it as a future career path. I just did it because I genuinely loved the team and because I genuinely loved the game and eventually got to a point where I was like, hmm, I actually think that if I keep going with this, that uh, it could potentially take me somewhere. And so I'm uh, uh, pretty fortunate uh, to end up uh, here uh, many years later. Now, the athletics a little more freeform than a lot of sort of sports uh, media outlets. Are you allowed to be a fan? Well, that's well, I mean, that's one of the interesting things is as soon as you start covering the team and once you sort of have to look at it from such a rigorous perspective and do it in a professional way, it honestly kills the fandom in you. Uh, I don't, I didn't necessarily expect it going in, but it just naturally just happened as soon as I started working uh, full-time. I think maybe when you're still blogging and you're still, and when you're still um, in our arm's length away from covering the team, you might still have some sort of emotional investment, but I don't know. It's strange. I don't, I can't even necessarily put my finger on why, but as soon as you are covering these athletes, as soon as you're in locker rooms, as soon as you're actually going to these games and um, you're trying to analyze from such an objective perspective, it just kills a fandom in you. And um, that's why for me, it's, it's really interesting because I'll still have fond memories of 
you know, the 2011 team that I, that I grew up cheering for. But when it comes to, for example, uh, this group or, you know, I've been covering the Canucks for almost four years now. In that time, there's really been none of that attachment. So I, uh, I have lost that fandom. Okay. And you grew up as a fan of the Canucks. Are we talking about the Sedin twin times? Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, okay. Exactly. Okay. So you've also had to go through kind of like the, the long rebuild, the down times. For sure. I didn't, I didn't, well, I mean, I, I was about to say I didn't cover the, the long drawn out rebuild when they sort of retired. But I guess if you look at it, the Canucks have pretty much uh, missed the playoffs every year except uh, the 2020 bubble. So yeah, it's been a painful process for, the Canucks for the last decade or so. And yeah, I mean, as soon as I started covering the team, it was actually at a point where there was some hope, right? Because Elias Pettersson had uh, had yeah. emerged and you had Quinn Hughes as well. And you and you thought, all right, you know, JT Miller had been acquired. You still, Bo, you still had at the time Bo Horvat as your captain. So a lot of people were optimistic that, okay, the next core is here and, um, and that they'll continue building. In my first year covering the team, they obviously did end up making the playoffs, winning a round pushing Vegas to seven games and you thought, okay, this is something to build upon. This is the next new era of winning hockey in Vancouver. But, uh, but since then, obviously it's uh, been a bit of a disaster for the franchise again. And um, we're, we're back here. Now, based on your geography, I could imagine there are probably a lot of fans in your region of Seattle teams. Is, is there like a, a big Seattle Kraken push in Vancouver or no? Not as much just because I think it's, you know, when you start as a, as a, you know, I think in any market cheering for, if you grew up in the city, it's hard to, to kind of just switch um, allegiances just like that, it's especially if there had been any time for it to kind of happen, you would have imagined it would have been recently when Seattle made the, made the playoffs and obviously took, took down Colorado in the first round, the defending Stanley Cup champions, but honestly didn't really see any of that um at all happening i, I know it, it's it's funny because here most um most people people in vancouver will still be seahawks fans or something yeah, from the nfl mariners and things like that yeah mariners it's divided actually that's that's a that's always a heated debate about whether uh vancouver fans like what the split is in terms of mariners versus blue jays okay uh that actually that actually gets a lot of play here uh, in terms of a debate, but when it comes to Vancouver versus Seattle for hockey, it's uh, it's still pretty much all Vancouver. Okay, that that's good to know. I mean, I'm I'm in the Toronto market, so it's all Leafs here, and you get the odd Habs fan for whatever reason. But from for the most part, it's all Leafs here. Now looking ahead, uh, Vancouver's got a pretty early pick in this year's draft, and I would say this is probably one of the deepest drafts in quite some time. W- would you agree with that? Absolutely. When you look at uh, the top three, four guys in particular, each one of them could have a case to go number one overall in, in a lot of other years, especially when you contrast this to last year's draft draft uh, crop, which was considered to be uh, a bit of a weaker pool. You obviously have Bedard at the top, who is, I mean, people would debate about whether he's a generational talent or not, whether he's a generational prospect, but and, and certainly... Um, I can understand both sides of the coin, but you can't deny his outrageous level of, of talent. And at the bare minimum, he's a, he's a prospect uh, at, at the same caliber of, uh, of Austin Matthews uh, in 2016. So that, that just goes to show that this is the type of player who is single-handedly going to change 
um, Chicago's uh, fortunes. But then even after that, the likes of Adam Fantilli, right? It's been so long. I don't, I, I actually don't even know the history of whether we've seen a draft eligible prospect like Adam Fantilli lead um, all NCAA players in goals and, and points and win the Hobie Baker as freshman. Uh, that's, you know, sensational stuff. Uh, beyond that, you obviously also have Leo Carlson, who's a 6'4 uh, center with, uh, with with two-way qualities, with skill, finesse, who's already been productive in the SHL against men um, and producing at a historical level there, there too, not unprecedented, but at a level that's uh, comparable to a lot of other greats from Sweden. Uh, Will Smith has worked his way into the conversation, into the conversation in the top five. Uh, you look at Matt Vemichkov, he's uh he scored the most uh, points in the KHL of uh, of a draft eligible player in history. He's been touted as the best Russian prospect since Alex Ovechkin and uh, Evgeny Malkin. So the top end of this draft class is um, is really really special for sure. Now, what are you looking for Vancouver to do in this draft? That's a million dollar question because there are so many different directions they could go. For Vancouver right now, their biggest position of need is probably on the blue line or, or maybe even at center ice, but when you look at this draft class, it's very forward heavy. And yes. what tends to happen is just even if a draft class is forward heavy, teams will start reaching and overdrafting just to take defensemen because of those positional needs. So if you're Vancouver at 11, you're probably in a situation where it's an awkward spot to be in. You have a lot of options because if you're trying to target a defenseman at 11, chances are you'd be reaching for one. Chances are that a defenseman would not be the best player available. Chances are that the best player available might end up being a winger that slips, that was initially projected to go in the top 10, but uh, slips out maybe like a, a, Zach, uh, a Zach Benson, uh, a Kobe Barlow, uh, a player, I mean, maybe even a Ryan Leonard. So you you sort of think about that and you go, well, wing is the Canucks' deepest position, so how do they feel about that? Now, I'm always a believer that you take the best player available when you're uh, drafting as high as 11th overall, especially in a draft class like this one, where because it's so deep, you could see a top 10 player, as I mentioned, top 10 talent slip. And I still think that there's a chance you could end up drafting a future star. So you don't want to end up passing passing up on one just to fill a positional need. Uh, but it is going to be interesting to see what Vancouver does, especially because there's um, a lot of noise around the possibility of we know that Vancouver needs to clear out some salary cap space in order to have the flexibility to make some additions for next season. So would they be in a position to potentially dangle that pick um, and look at potential tradeback scenarios, for example, that allow them to maybe, you know, maybe in the process of trading down, you end up shedding um, a contract that you want to get off the books. So. There are a lot of options for the Canucks at uh, at 11, and um, that's probably the most intriguing storyline for the Canucks going into this offseason. How do you feel about teams potentially drafting Russian players in this draft? Yeah, that's that's a, a question that's come to the forefront because of the Mitchkov debate in, uh, in particular. Everybody's trying to weigh up. They know that on pure talent, he's, uh, pro- he's easily a top three talent, but once you consider the contract status of Mitchkov in particular, um, and of course the geopolitical concerns, obviously in last year's draft, some teams just refused to take Russians. They didn't even have them on their draft lists. Uh, it, it, it continues to sort of come up uh, as a debate and it still varies from team to team. Some teams, it hasn't affected their process at all. Some teams, 
uh, from what I understand, are still going to approach it from a perspective of, hey, we're not going to be drafting Russian players. We're not going to have, have them on our list again. So it just comes down to each individual team's risk tolerance. Uh, obviously, I think there's been like, you know, the, the, my guess of it, my guess with it right now would be that teams are probably a little bit less concerned about the geopolitical side of it than they were maybe a year ago. I think there's a little bit more certainty because I remember there was a time when even when it came to, for example, Karel Kaprizov, who was in Russia and looking to get back to Minnesota for the start of this season, it was a very, um, uh, you know, uh, a, wor a worrying process for, for Wild fans. They were sort of holding their breath about, could he get back to North America? How easy of, of a process would it be? And it was it turned into a huge ordeal. I don't think it's, uh, at least right now, uh, sitting here in May anyway, anticipated to be as, um, as big of a as big of a concern so um i personally wouldn't be too worried about taking russian players in this draft but i can understand why it's still lingering in the back of uh some teams' mind okay and you had mentioned that probably their greatest need is is d-line but how do you feel about their goaltender situation well with that Jodemko, i'm still very confident that, that he can be a high-end number one starter we certainly saw that once he came back from his uh, his injury that he started looking like himself again which was absolutely vital if if there was a scenario where let's say we know how much he struggled in the first half of the season but if he had gotten hurt and then come back and struggled again to close out the season then i think there would have been a lot more uh, uncertainty and question marks around okay what version of Demko are the canucks going to get heading into uh, next season but i think his, his bounce back sort of answered those uh those question marks especially because this is a player who whose uh, long-term track record whether it's been at the nhl level AHL level uh, college hockey has uh, has been practically dominant everywhere he's played and it's also not uh, uncommon for goaltenders regardless of how good they are to um you know to have inconsistent uh, years to have a down season here or there so uh, I don't think there's too much long-term concern around Demko besides just, I mean, the only, the only thing that uh, lingers in the back of my mind is health, right? If, if he gets, uh, if he gets hurt, hurt again, then obviously he and the Canucks are, are in, uh, in big trouble. But, uh, but after him, there's still, you know, some healthy debate about who's going to be the backup and how are they going to manage that? Because Spencer Martin, for instance, you know, entered the season as the backup. He struggled a lot. And so it's a question of, okay, can he handle the, uh, the fort for next season? Um, or will Archer Seelovs, who's 22-year-old talented prospect and just, just coming off of uh, being named tournament MVP at the, uh, at the World World Championships here, could he end up pushing for a spot? And how do you weigh the fact that, okay, maybe you, you, maybe you may even look at him as the more talented goalie than Martin right now, but he's still so young and you want to ensure that you don't rush him and um, put him in a position where if he's only playing 20 games as a backup behind Demko that, you know, you wonder if he's getting enough playing time to actually develop and hit his eventual ceiling once he hits his prime. So yeah. overall, still some question marks in terms of the number two position, but um, with Demko in that, I, I think you're, you're pretty optimistic about a bounce back if you're the Canucks. Are you ready to stay fit this winter? Get off the couch with Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Sign up now to their mobility and movement program. Use the code PSP15 to get 15% off the one-time purchase of the program. Then it's yours forever. No additional subscriptions or fees. The program is available worldwide. Now, back to the show. 
any contracts on that roster you'd like to see them find a way to get rid of? Tyler Myers sort of okay. sticks out okay. at, the, at the top of uh, the list uh, for sure. I mean, he and Oliver Ekman Larson both saw a, a huge decline in um, in the level that they played at because it, it, because it's funny a year ago, so not last season, but the one before they actually held up well in second pair matchup uh, roles and were a big part of why the, the team under Bruce Boudreaux for a while ended up going on such a miraculous run and nearly sneaking back into the playoffs. But last year was such a disaster for, for both of them. But, uh, but in Ekman Larson's case, He's got a no movement clause, and um, and yes. so you're like no one's going to trade for that contract, especially with the term left on it. Whereas at least with Myers, who's only got one year left on his deal, plus once the signing bonus is paid out in mid September, he's only owed one million dollars in actual uh, cash, which would be a more palatable contract for let's say a smaller market team to uh, to take on because it means you can. Uh, you know, reach the cap floor maybe a little bit easier without having to, um, you know, actually dole out a lot of uh, cash as an ownership group. So Myers definitely sticks out at the top of that list. And then beyond that, you're probably looking at um, at a winger. The Canucks have a lot of mid-range wingers who, who are in that sort of like three to six, six and a half million dollar range, uh, especially with Andre Kuzmenko's emergence. So whether it's a Connor Garland, whether it's a Brock Besser, whether it's even an Anthony Beauvillier, one of those guys probably has to, um, you know, you'd hope that they look at uh, moving one of those contracts so you can maybe reallocate some of that space to upgrading at center or, or on the back end. Okay. And then, I mean, taking in not so much recent history, but looking at it from the, the big picture in the Pacific division, who's their primary rival? Do they have like a real, I mean, I would accept, expect it to be the other side of the Canadian Rockies, but who is it? Yeah, honestly, I don't think there is one right now. I, I think okay. a big part of it too has to do with I think playoff playoff or rivalries are often much stronger and, and end up being created in the in the playoffs more than anything. Anything, and the Canucks just haven't had an opportunity to really um, get into um, get into the postseason and, and have that that hatred for another team again, right? Because back when the Sedins were around and the Canucks were routinely making the playoffs. Fans here hated Chicago and Boston, and they still probably oh. do to some extent because of, you know, those heated playoff uh, battles again and again. And, and don't get me wrong, uh, you know, fans here, I'm sure, probably don't like Calgary, probably don't like Edmonton. Uh, but even you look at, like, Seattle, right, as the closest geographic team, sure, you know, I, you know, I don't look at Seattle as a, as a team that fans here like. But there's also not really a strong hatred just because they haven't had many high-stakes battles against each other. And that's what it takes, I think, to build um, true rivalries. How do you feel about Tockett so far as coach? I've been impressed. I think he's come in. And with him, there there were a couple of, of aspects where I think you were hoping for him to sort of make an impact long-term. Number one is hopefully tightening up uh, the team's defensive play, which we certainly saw down the stretch. Obviously, you have to take it with a grain of salt because the goaltending was much better too, which obviously helps make uh, make, make the goals against numbers look, uh, look a lot better. And they also had a much easier schedule. And you also typically do see uh, a coach's bump anytime a, a new uh, bench boss is hired. We, have, we obviously saw it in Vancouver with Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux for a while as well. So you you take everything that happened with a grain of salt in the, sec in the second half, but it is encouraging to see how much better the team was defending. They allowed 
you know, a lot less from the slot. They were more structured. They were able to break pucks out as a five-man unit a lot more effectively. It just seemed that they had a plan and were were actually able to, um, you know, for example, they had a lot fewer breakdowns and, and turnovers and were, were managing the game a lot better to where they were allowing a lot less off the rush. And they just seemed like a more organized uh, product, which is obviously what management was hoping for when they made that coaching change. And, and the second side of it was in moving from Boudreaux to, uh, to Tockett, who's definitely more of a, a strict disciplinarian type they're they're looking for somebody to hold the players accountable and um yeah. and maintain higher standards and higher lo- levels of, of professionalism because this this honestly isn't a, a group of players that is um is self-sufficient in that type of way this isn't a veteran group that uh knows um knows excellent practice habits and and just has it uh, has it in them and has a a really experienced leadership core that can you know help establish those guidelines I think with Taki coming in, the the organization's hoping that uh, that he can you know be um, be a little bit more of uh, an I don't want to say an intimidating presence, but just holding guys accountable. And so far, it's uh, it's been effective. But um, you know, we've seen this team also take a run under Boudreaux at, in the tail end of uh, the year before this one. So a lot of fans are are careful about not getting too excited about the run that we saw just because we'll have to see how it all looks when the pressure and the stakes are actually on because when the pressure and stakes were actually on at the start of last season they totally crumbled despite all the positive momentum that they built up under Bruce Boudreau. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No good point and you do your own hockey analytics correct? I used to. I used to do uh, a lot of sort of zone exit and zone entry tracking around the Canucks, but uh, because of the workload and the podcasting and also doing some national coverage, I, ha- I haven't had um, as much of an opportunity to track my uh, my own microstats. I-, I still lean on them, but uh, it's through now uh, Corey Schneider's uh, work, whose uh, whose data is uh, you know his work is publicly available. On, on Patreon to subscribe to. So that's that's what I lean on these days. Okay. Do you gamble at all? I don't, no. You, you know, you don't gamble on you don't gamble on your own sport. <laughs> well, I, I'm not even allowed to because of uh of, of our contracts. So Okay. Okay. Now did you play hockey growing up or no? I didn't. So I learned how to I learned ironically enough, I, I always wanted to play, but uh, I think uh, our, my family knew that the five six a.m. practices just weren't gonna <laughs> yeah. weren't gonna cut it. So they were like, "All right, we'll we'll put you in evening lessons so you can learn how to skate." So I can skate amazing. But they're like, "For your actual sport, let's put you in soccer." So I ended up playing soccer my whole life, but uh, I still know how to skate really well. <laughs> now, how are the facilities in Vancouver? How's the stadium and everything? Rogers Arena. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely in need of renovations. It's uh, it's an older barn, and when you look at uh, whether it's the seats, whether whether you look at um, some of the jumbotrons, like for example, when I went on the road and, and you know I've been fortunate enough to visit a lot of uh, way buildings now, yeah. seeing seeing Philadelphia, the Wells Fargo Center, for example, from what I recall, that building is the same age as Rogers Arena, which which when you com- when you contrast the state of those facilities and. I was just in awe at uh, you know the state of the art flyers sort of jumbotron and how much sleeker everything looked. Yeah, there's definitely work to be done in Rogers Arena. I know that they've been 
trying to chip away at some re- renovations. Um, they redid the locker rooms going into last season, for example. There, you know, it seems like whether it's the hallways or the media room, there's always something going on um, in you know behind the scenes in terms of renovations. And there's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely still still uh, an ongoing process. You can definitely squeeze squeeze more juice out of the facility. It's nowhere near, for example, a building like Calgary, which is immediately, uh, you know, when you go there, you're like, oh boy, this is an old barn, but. Yeah. Um, Rogers, I think, is at a stage where you just need to keep maintaining new renovations to ensure that it uh, continues looking modern. And are ticket prices reasonable there? Dave, uh, okay, so I, 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 I should say I'm, I'm pretty, um, I come from, I think, a bit of a biased perspective because a lot of my friends are still university aged. So they still get, they, they get student rush discount tickets. Okay. Um, and so at least for younger people, I know that um, there are still some pretty decent deals, even for some lower uh, bowl tickets. You know, tickets are never cheap in Vancouver for, for hockey games. But I think because of the team not playing as well, the secondary market is um, like if you're, let's let's say, not a season ticket holder and you're just looking for a random game in mid-January to go to on a Tuesday night against the Arizona Coyotes. Yeah. I don't think it's it's too hard to get into the building, at least relative to um, how competitive it uh, it used to be when the team was really good. And and what's the big sport market there? I pretty much just hockey. Uh, we don't really have any other, you know, there. It's not like Toronto where you also have the Blue Jays, the Raptors. You have the Whitecaps and uh, the MLS and yeah. you know the BC Lions and CFL, but um, you know their seasons obviously are. Um, are uh, are opposite of of when the hockey season is there's you know there's lacrosse here which i think you know among the younger crowd has gained a little bit of traction just because of how cheap it is um to go to and it's a fun vibe but uh it's vancouver's like 99 percent hockey oh that's awesome man so it's it's like truly a canadian sport truly truly (laughs) that's awesome because yeah in toronto it's i mean every other person's got a different sport they like so it's it's not the same feel here even though the Maple Leafs are still number one in the market. There's a lot of fans, a lot of different sports. So you don't, you don't get that feel. Now, what's a reasonable expectation as far as points for next season? For the Canucks? For the Canucks. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know about necessarily pegging a number to it. I mean, maybe sort of the low to midnight. I mean, it it, so much hinges uh, obviously on what they do in the off season, what their competitors do in the off season. So I'd have to give you a wider range, but you know, my initial thought is I view this team as sort of being in a position where they're probably going to be right around the bubble in terms of whether or not they make it into the playoffs playoffs or not. I think they'll probably need, they'll probably need, some luck to actually get in. Like if I were to, you know, again, we're so far out that it's, it's really tough to do this, but you know, maybe their playoff odds would be forward peg it now a little bit shy of 50% because definitely I think with Demko bounce in a scenario where Demko bounces back and you add Philip Pronick to upgrade, um, upgrade the second pair and you have a new coach can instill defensive habits. There's definitely a pathway for them to get back into the playoffs. It's definitely reasonable, but uh, but the Pacific Division is a lot more competitive now than maybe you would have thought a year or two ago because of Seattle's emergence and how right. they're, how they're still going to have cap space. Uh, LA is still a really competitive team. Edmonton's definitely not going anywhere. Calgary with a new head coach could uh, could end up being competitive uh, as as well. So, I mean, maybe points wise, if I were to basically you know 
throw a, throw a blind dart. You know, I'd guess maybe somewhere in the high high 80s, anywhere from the high 80s to the mid 90 point range. Okay, so you're you're looking at an improvement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I don't think this team is is nearly as bad as uh, they. I mean, I guess with with, uh, with with the run that they had towards towards the year end, they didn't even finish bottom ten. But I think they're definitely on true talent. I think they're right around the fringes of of being a of being a playoff team, probably outside of it. If I'm being totally honest, but. Because of that, I definitely do think that, um, you know, they played below their talent baseline this season. Okay. I, th- I think that's a fair assessment as well. I think they're a little hamstrung toward the end of the season as well. I think they had a couple of banged up players. It just didn't help them get there. But, say la vie, I do think they're going to bounce back a bit next season. I do see them as you see them where they could be on the bubble. They could squeak in. It's the possibility. Now, Harmon, where are people going to be able to find you on social media? Yeah, uh, people can find me on uh, on Twitter. My uh, handle's at HarmonDial2. And um, yeah, my work's on The Athletic. Okay, bold prediction for you here. Not not too bold, but bold prediction. Who are the, let's go with top four players selected in the draft this year? Bedard, number one. Okay. I'll, I'll give you a bold prediction here. I'll go Leo Carlson number two, despite oh, Ed eventually the big sweep. Yeah, yeah. It's I've I mean just in conversations with scouts, there are at least it's probably a minority, but there's definitely a bit of a push where some uh, senior scouts uh, who work for NHL teams rate you know do prefer Carlson at number two. So despite Fantilli being the favorite for number. Uh, for number two, I'll give you a bold, bold prediction here with uh, with Carlson at two. Okay. Um, after that, I'll go Fantilli three, and I'll go um, Will Smith. Will Smith four. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll check back in with you when the draft happens to see how how correct you were. I do like Leo Carlson, by the way. Other than, but I am a little biased towards Swedish players. I always like the Swedish players, so. I am biased there, but yeah, to me, he looks a little bit like a Swedish Lindros, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think people understand that he's not as close to being a finished product as, let's say, Fentilli is. But the combination of the size, the skill, and most importantly, the brain, the hockey sense. Yeah, um, I know it has some scouts drooling. Right on, right on. Well, good to have you on, Harmon. Good talking to you, buddy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I don't get too often to talk about the Canucks, so it's very interesting to hear what's going on that side of things because this is a gigantic country and we don't get everything. So it was kind of cool catching up with you. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our Insider Tips, Sponsor Giveaways, and Insider Newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcast's experience, where no sport is left behind.